0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. I want to do something a little bit different. It's not super different. Uh, it's actually something we've done in the past many, many times, but the past seems so long ago it might be new to some of us. And in fact, it is probably new to some of us because some of us are new. And so what I want to do this morning as we're continuing this series, Experiencing God, what I want us to do is to ask questions. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to kind of ease into it. I want you to repeat after me, okay? If you're online, you can type it out. I I won't see your question, though, but that's okay. Ready to repeat after me? You're not even vocal for that. How are we going to repeat after me? Okay, it goes like this. Hey, Hey, Rob. I have a question. Okay, now keep that in mind. It's a really complex sentence, And it's easy to forget, but keep that in mind. As we get towards the end of our time together this morning, I want you, if you have a question, to ask it. We're going to do this at least for the remainder of this series. We've done this many times in the past. We kind of got out of that habit. And the reason why I want to do that is because I had a lot of questions from some of you over the last week talking about what we talked about last week. And questions, and I'm convinced of this, are how we grow and how we learn And it helps us to understand things more. So if you have questions, I want you to ask them. Now, if your question is something like, hey, Rob, who's going to win the Stanley Cup? Don't ask that because the good teams aren't even in it right now. It's okay. But something about this morning, something about the topic we're speaking on, something about the scriptures, if something pops in your mind, maybe you can write it down, put it in your phone. If you type it online, I'll try to get to you at some point, maybe not during the service, but I'm open to your questions, and please know that questions are a good thing. There's nothing wrong with questioning. Sometimes we avoid them. Now, with that little preamble, I do want to bring up one thing, and this is really, really, really important, and that's this— If you ask the wrong question, you will get the wrong answer. That might sound a little bit redundant, but it's true. If you ask a question that's not really what you want to know, you're not going to know what you want to know. Sometimes, we if you've ever been to school, at least this has been my experience, sometimes you're in classes with people, and there are certain people who ask questions, and the reason why they ask questions is actually so they sound really smart. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or if you've been that person. It's okay. You can confess it. There's no problem. That's not why we ask questions. We ask questions because we want to know. We're inquisitive. We want answers. And maybe we won't get the answers, but if we ask a question that's not really what we want to know, then we won't get it right. Asking questions is really, uh, it's an art in some ways, because sometimes we can ask questions and they can be very leading and maybe not really give us what we're looking for. Like, so if I were to ask you after the service, I'd say, how great was my sermon this morning? That's a very leading question. And I'm assuming that you think it's great. And even if you didn't, I'm telling you, well, it was great. So just tell me on a scale of how great my greatness is, right? Right? So what a question needs to be something that isn't isn't pushing in a direction, but is just open to what could be. And I think that's part of the reality of our journey with Jesus, is that there are a lot of questions we have, and sometimes we need to have the opportunity to ask them. So please know you're able to ask them here. If you're not comfortable during the service asking, talk to me afterwards, we can talk about things, or we can talk about it next week. You can just send me an email through the week, and we'll try and get in touch. One of the questions that most often I get asked by people uh, is this question here. What is God's will for my life? And this is an alright question. you know. And maybe you've asked this question before yourself. But maybe it's not the right question, and there's a better question to ask. And the better question is this. What is God's will? When we ask the question of what is God's will for my life, we're assuming some things. First, we're assuming that we have an idea of what God's will might be in the first place. The other thing we're assuming is that we're really important and that there's something really important that God has for us. And then sometimes when we start to explore that question, we can get very discouraged when we realize that, actually, God has something very ordinary for me that can be extraordinary when it's with him. So the question I want to explore this morning is, what is God's will? Some of us do have something very specific that God is inviting us into based on our gifting, based on our conversations that we have with God, and you might be very clear as to what that is, and maybe you're not very clear. But before we get to what that specific thing might be for you that you're wanting to explore, I really want us to explore what is God's overall will. What is it that God desires for all of us? inclusive of everybody. And before we get to that, let's just take a moment to pray. God, I thank you that you are a God that does have a good desire for your people. In fact, you have a good desire for all people, even people who do not know you yet, God. I pray this morning that our hearts and our minds are just open to what you might want to say through the scriptures we're going to read this morning, and also through each other. As we ask our questions, as we open ourselves up to be inquisitive about who you are and what it means to follow you, I pray that uh, we direct our thoughts by the power of the Holy Spirit to what you have for us. Help us to know your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as we explore this, maybe allow us to be open to the fact that it might not be what we always thought and to challenge ourselves to see what you might have to say. And i just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To explore what God's will is, I want to do something. What I want to do is I want to establish some principles. And these are three principles that are found in Scripture. And the first principle is this, that God is always at work. God is always at work. Some of us who are more familiar with Scripture, we might be familiar with uh, the story found in Genesis, uh, well, actually, it's the poem found in Genesis 1, where God creates over six days, and then the seventh day he rests. And then the, there's the instruction that people are to rest as well. Some people over time have associated it that God is always resting. God's not active in the world. But I would argue that that's wrong. God is always at work. In fact, it's something that Jesus himself says in John's gospel. In John chapter 5, it is says a story that, or a statement that comes after Jesus has healed someone. And he says this, so John 5 verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, so that's the day you're supposed to not do things. He had just healed somebody who was by a pool the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, that word persecute means to uh, verbally pursue someone. So it's like they were verbally questioning Jesus in a, in a kind of chasing way. So they were asking questions to Jesus that were very leading. Probably things like, Jesus, why are you healing on the Sabbath? You're a sinner. Very leading questions. So he's being persecuted at this moment. It says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's some very important things that are said in that passage. First off, theologically, meaning like what we believe about God, our thoughts about God, Jesus is claiming he is equal to God, meaning he is God in that moment. So sometimes we might wrestle with that question. That's an answer right there. The text says it very explicitly. But his point is that God is always at work. It's easy to ignore that, especially when we experience life together, because we see things happening that we're like, this cannot be good, this is not of God, and we're wondering, how is God at work? It's another question we ask. We might not maybe get that clear answer that we're looking for, but even if we haven't had that clear answer, the fact remains God is always at work. God is not done with us yet. He's always at work. Second principle I want to look at is this. God wants a relationship with you. You might not realize this. It might be hard to realize, but God wants a relationship with you. There is a desire upon God's part to make a way for you to be connected to him. This is what we celebrate at Easter. That Jesus created a way for us to be reconciled with God through his death and resurrection on the cross, and we have a relationship with him. In the book of Revelation, there's this part at the beginning of the book where there are these letters that get explored about who got Jesus speaking to churches, saying what, what it's all about. And he says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. We might think, well, okay, like let's have lunch, Jesus. That sounds great. But the idea to sit at the table with someone was a depth of relationship for his context. And so when Jesus says, Hey, I'm knocking at the door. If you let me in, we will have a relationship. This is the constant invitation from Jesus. God is always at work. And because of Jesus, we have a relationship with God. If we open the door and sit and eat we are all regardless of where we've been what we've come where we come from what we've believed in the past invited to open the door and sit and eat jesus died and rose again for every single person why because god wants a relationship with you and with everybody and he's still at work Now, the third principle is this, when we talk about God's will. God invites us to participate in his work. So God is always at work. God wants a relationship with you. And God is inviting us to join and participate in partnership with the work he is already doing. Right? So if he's already at work, we can look around and go, where is God at work? And we can participate because of the relationship we have with him in what he's doing. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote this, 2 verse 12, therefore, now I said this before if you were here last week or if you listened online, when you... Paul says, therefore, we need to go back and say, what for? He's saying something before that. Right before this, he gives this uh, reciting of an ancient creed about who Jesus is and how Jesus humbled himself, he emptied himself, and became like us to be with us, but God exalted him. And so he says, because of that, understanding this is the context, you've got some troubles in your church, let's follow the example of Jesus. He says, therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will you and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul explains that it is God who is already at work in us that helps us to act externally, that he has a purpose, there's something going on, and because the God who we know to be true through Jesus is always at work in our world, and he wants a relationship with us, and because we have that relationship, he's at work in us as well. He is transforming us to be more and more who we've always been meant to be, and he's inviting us to participate in what he's doing. And it's him who helps us have that desire to fulfill his purposes on earth. So those are the three principles. God is always working. God wants a relationship with you. And God is inviting you to participate in what he's doing. Okay? Three principles. Keep these in mind. God's always at work. He wants a relationship with you. And he's inviting you to participate in his work. So again, we go to the question. With that all in mind, what is God's will? What is his good, perfect, pleasing will, as the Apostle Paul will say in Romans? Not just for you in particular, but for all people. What is God's will? And we're going to go to Jesus. Matthew chapter 22. We're jumping into a lot of different scriptures, so hopefully you can follow. Matthew 22, the story of Jesus as it's unfolding, it's coming near its climax where he is going to be persecuted, tried, die, and rise again. 22, 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So this is one religious group. They're kind of the more liberal religious group. They kind of don't really actually believe their traditions. They kind of ignore the scriptures. Jesus is confronted by them, and they're, he's at, they're asking questions about marriage and resurrection. And He's like, hey, you don't really believe in resurrection, so why are you asking this question? Again, wrong questions get you wrong answers. It says that Jesus and Sadducees, the Pharisees, so these are the more legalistic religious group, the ones who take it very seriously, word for word, this is all you've got to do, follow all the rules to be right with God, got together. One of them, who is an expert in the law, Tested him with this question, and some of us are very familiar with this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Remember, questions are important. Here's this religious leader, someone who knows these words very, very well, has a question. Now his question, if we understand the context of the time and someone who's like this person in their context and what they would do, is that this is part of how they teach, is they ask questions and you would respond. Him being an expert in the law, likely he has his own conclusion as to what it would be. Different Gospels record the story differently, but in Matthew's Gospel, he's asking this question. Does he really want to know the answer? I'm not sure. Is this a bad question? No, it's not. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus expressly says here, this is God's will for your life. You are to love God and love others like you love yourself. That's it. That's it. Love God, love others like yourself. All of the teachings of the Old Testament hang on this command. The prophets who would say, hey, we need to get back to the instructions of God from long ago because we've stopped loving our neighbors, we stopped loving God, this all hangs on this. The teachings of the law which were meant to guide the people from long ago to say, this is how you love God, this is how you love your neighbor, it all hangs on these two statements. So we need to read those teachings for sure. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's will for your life. It's incredibly complicated and simple at the same time. But it's all that God asks. And for some of us, we might start thinking, okay, well, what does that look like? How do I love God and how do I love my neighbor as myself? We might be thinking, okay, well, what does that mean for my future prospects? What does that mean for my career or my education or for my kids or for my parents even? Like, what does that look like? What is the plan, God? How do I love people? How do I love you? And we might be looking for a plan. And one of the things that I think that comes up through Scripture continuously is God never gives people a complete plan. He gives them a next step. Henry Blackaby, in the book, Experiencing God, which some of these principles are based off of, expresses that when, if we had a full plan, chances are we'd be so focused on the plan, we'd stop, to f- stop focusing on God. God doesn't give us a full picture of everything that's going to happen because as soon as we know it all, we ignore him. God gives you an invitation to take a next step. You are invited as he knocks on the door, and he wants to sit and eat with you, to open it. That's your next step. And as you sit with him, you have the opportunity to love him and love others. That's your next step. So what does that look like? For each of us, it might look different. And we're going to spend more time next week going into, well, what does that look like? How do we know We are loving God and loving our neighbors. How do we know God is inviting us into his will like this? And we'll talk more about that next week for sure. But Dallas Willard said it like this, and I've always appreciated it, is that all you have to do is do the next right thing you know you ought to do. All you have to do is do the next right thing you know you ought to do. You might not have the whole picture. You might not have the whole plan. But we know that God's will is that you love him and you love your neighbor as yourself. So just do the next thing that you know fits into that category. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life, this is it. It's his will for everyone. To be in a relationship with him. To know that he's still at work and to participate in the work he's doing. And I would love to know if you have any questions around that at this time. It's always awkward to get that first question out. So... If one of you is really brave. It'll be great. But if you have no questions, that's okay. Hey, you're not repeating what I said. The first line, Ron. Come on. <laughs> go, go. Hey, Rob. I got a question. All right. Uh, who is neighbor? That is a great question. You know what? I was actually speaking at a, a few events this week around that question, and in French. So I know you might appreciate that. (laughs) Who is our neighbor, right? And so that's the question that actually gets asked in Scripture. And so we look in Luke's Gospel, the story of the Good Samaritan, where people are saying, like, hey, if you're going to love your neighbor, who's your neighbor? And then he tells this beautiful story of how there's a man who is injured on the road, and then the religious people ignore him, and the other people ignore him, and there's a Samaritan who walks by and cares for the man a Samaritan, in his context, was somebody who would be on the outside of the society, somebody you don't associate with. And Jesus said, well, who acted like a neighbor? And they're all like, oh, I guess it's a Samaritan. Who is our neighbor? The answer is everybody. Absolutely everybody. Anybody you don't like, guess what? They're your neighbor. Anybody who lives half a world away, they're still your neighbor. Anybody down the street, They're still your neighbor. Neighbor is a very open term to say others. I found it interesting. So I was in speaking at this thing in in French. It's qui est la prochaine? And and the way I would translate that, and I had such a hard time when they asked me that question, I was like, "That, that question means who is next to me, not just who is closest, right? And it's... Your neighbor is anybody. And I think if we think in concentric circles, your neighbor starts in your home. If you've got kids, if you've got parents, if you've got brothers and sisters, if you've got a spouse. And then it extends to your literal people living next to you, to your workplaces, to your church family, and it goes and goes and goes. Ron, I hope this answers your question. There's no limit on who your neighbor is. So who do we love? Everybody. Even the ones we don't like very much. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate you asking that question. Anybody else can yell it out. That's a great question, Norm. Thank you. So if you are prone to, for those who didn't hear, if you are prone to kind of wanting that whole picture of what what's God's plan for my life, and I think, let's be honest, many of us are, and how do you stop going that way and just focus on that next step? And I think, we're going to talk about it a bit, bit more next week, so I don't want to give everything away because I want you to come back, you know. <laughs> if I say everything, I'll never see you again. But part of it is... To reframe your focus, right? It's to go, my focus is I want to know the story. I want to know everything. And I want to reframe that to go, I want to know Jesus. When we focus on the relationship as opposed to the outcome of that relationship, that can help us. And what I've discovered, and I'm sure you've discovered it too because you're a very mature believer yourself, is that the more you focus on Jesus, the more that's all you focus on. Is there's something about that love that we grow in the more we spend time with God. And it becomes so much easier to not focus on other things, right? So we focus, Second uh, Corinthians, I can't remember the exact verse, but I said it yesterday. Uh, we focus on the things unseen as opposed to the things that are seen, right? We focus on God. And that helps us. It doesn't solve everything. There'll still be moments where we're like, okay, I just need to know what's next, especially when there's those confusing moments in our lives where things just don't make sense at all. And we're thinking, how can this be God's plan? First, we have to trust God, that he wants our good, and focus on that relationship. So that's an abbreviated answer, and hopefully next week I'll answer more. So I hope to see you next week. Anybody else have something they want to ask at this time? That's a great question. Thank you, Celia. So the question is, like, because you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, what happens when you don't love yourself? Like, how do you, like, so if I hate myself, it's really easy for me to hate my neighbor, right? And the truth is, as we've experienced in our own lives, when we think negatively of ourselves, sometimes that comes out in how we treat others, even the people we think we love. So that's a great question. I think the first thing we always have to come back to, and I think this is a story of scripture, again, it's that relationship with, with God. Is that you were worth it? You were worth Jesus dying for. That at some point, he knew that you needed him and you were worth it. Ephesians 2, Apostle Paul says, You are God's great work of art, created for good works in Christ Jesus, created anew for great works in Christ Jesus, right? You're worth it. And it's hard because sometimes we focus on our maybe I'm not so good, maybe I don't look so good in the mirror. I mean, I'm sure you never have that problem, but I sure do. You know, maybe, I, maybe I've said something I shouldn't have said. Maybe I did something I shouldn't have done. And we focus on those negatives. And again, we have to reframe and rest in that relationship that God said, you're worth it. And it's hard to do. And part of it, I think, is that we need to not just deal with it superficially, and a lot of us do that, but the reality is some of us have some very deep-rooted traumas. Uh, and I don't really like using that language because it gets used so many different ways. But we have some very deep-rooted traumas. Experiences that have happened. People have said things to us. People have done things to us. And we hold on to those things. And we think, well, if I just change this about me, I'll feel better about myself. But really, we've never dealt with the issue. And so sometimes we need to uncover those things, dig up the roots of the tree, and not just trim the branches. And bring those to Jesus. And sometimes it means repenting and sometimes it means asking forgiveness and sometimes crying out and saying, God, I'm really angry at this person because they did this to me and finding healing in that. And I think some good counseling is very valuable in that way as well to help us reframe how we think of ourselves. And so I don't know if this will fully answer the question because I think it's a really great question. But I think we need to start with shifting our identity and finding our identity in Jesus, knowing that he said you were worth it. And then working at uncovering some of that pain, that trauma, that sorrow that we feel. And the truth of it is, is that sometimes we have the the opposite as well. We think a whole lot of ourselves, and we maybe need to be humbled a little bit too, and recognize that Jesus died for us as well. So I hope that's a little bit helpful in response. Yes, Jessica. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's some people historically have taken this extreme. So like if, if we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves, does it doesn't mean get, get rid of everything we have so we can give to others? You know, we see the story of the early church, those of us who are familiar in Acts chapter two. One of the things it says is they shared all their possessions. They sold what they had and they made sure they shared so everybody was with, not without. You know, and I think part of it is understanding the language of that context that, you know, some people still had stuff. It's not like everybody had nothing. Because if everybody had nothing, then nobody would have anything. Um, but I do think part of it is an understanding of it's not always about immediate gratification for myself. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to a restaurant, like as your example, or, you know, buying yourself something. There's nothing wrong with that, or getting new clothes or, or whatever, going to a movie. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I do think we need to reevaluate how we use our finances. And if our money, is reflected about what we believe. And I think that's a bigger bigger topic and question to kind of explore, is if I look at my bank statement, how much am I really dedicating to God? Uh, or does everything go to me, right? So if I'm grateful for God for what he's done, how do I demonstrate that with my finances? And I'm not just saying give to Bromley. I mean, that would be great. Go right ahead. Um, but what do I do with it? What do I do with what I have? Do I use it to bless others or do I use it for, so I can just stay alone all the time and enjoy my own company, right? And so I think it's, it's a philosophical question of how we use our finances and how we view those things in our lives and our possessions as well. Personally, I'm not of the conviction that you need to sell everything, uh, and just kind of live that way. I don't think that's necessarily the continuous language of scripture. Um, because if it was, there are individuals like Lydia, who gets talked about in Acts, who is very wealthy, and her wealth allowed the church to blossom. And so if she didn't have that, God couldn't use her wealth to spread the words of Jesus. And so again, I think it's just examining what do we have, why do we have it, and are we acknowledging that everything's a good gift from God, so how do I give back to God? So I don't know if that'll fully answer your question, but hopefully that's just a different perspective on that as well that we could we could ponder. Anybody want to ask one last question? I know you probably want to go to lunch. I want to go to lunch. You have the last question. So in your message, you outline that God pursues an intimate relationship. That's a great question, David. Um, and the question is that if God has this pursuing relationship with us, that he loves us, how do we demonstrate in return that love for God, right? And I think if we were talking about marriage, we'd ask that same question, right? Like if if my spouse, the person I love, expresses their love for me, how do I respond, right? Uh, I think part of that is knowing the person you're responding to. In our human sense, everybody's different. In our God sense, God is God, and so how do we respond to God? What does God say throughout Scripture? And I actually think that ultimately, the way we demonstrate our love for God is loving what he loves. So when we love what God loves, who is that? Not what, who? Loving your neighbor is how you demonstrate your love for God. It's great for you to come here on Sunday. It's great for us to sing amazing songs, Rob. Thank you again for leading us. Um, it's great for you to give money away uh, to the church or wherever. It, all those things are great. Keep it up. But you are demonstrating your love for God by your love for your neighbor. That's the ultimate truth of Scripture. If you read through the prophets, what do the prophets, as God speaks to them, he talks about two things. One is, you gone away from me. God, so you've broken that relationship. The other thing he says is you've cheated your own friends. You know, you're you're doing all these things in uh Amos's uh Old Testament Amos prophet. One of my favorite passages, this is not a word-for-word quote. And he says, you know, stop your worship music. Just stop it. Stop playing the harp. We don't have a harp here, but stop playing the guitar. Stop playing whatever instrument it is. You know why? Because you're cheating people. What you think is worship isn't worship. How you treat others is. Scripture is abundantly clear over and over again about this, but we've kind of historically lost track of it. If you want to demonstrate your love for God, love the people he loves. Who does God love? Everybody. Now that's hard. That's not a full answer because we are going to talk about that more. Are you even talking? You might be talking about that one. You're talking in a few weeks, so. <laughs> I don't want to steal I don't want to steal your thunder here David. Let's take a moment to pray. Uh and and I'll bless you and I pray that it's a wonderful week. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you invite us um into your story. It is a story of redemption, of reconciliation. You invite us into the reality of our world not being the way it's supposed to be, but you invite us to experience you because you are constantly at work in this world and you desire this relationship with us and you're waiting for us to respond in partnership. I pray that we respond in partnership with you and we look to see how you're at work, look to see how you're at work in our own lives, recognizing that you have made us new, that no matter what we've experienced, what we've thought about ourselves, what other people have said about ourselves, is not how we are defined, but we are defined as new creations in Christ Jesus, that the old is gone and the new has come, and that we can see ourselves as those beautiful masterpieces you call us, that beautiful work of art, even when we don't feel like it. Help us to trust you and know that those words are true, and it's not just about what we think, but we have to hold on to the truth of who you are and what you say. And I pray that as we go from here, as maybe we've asked some questions, or maybe we have some questions that we're pondering, we seek to find the answers first from you, and maybe from each other as well, as there is some great wisdom in this room. And God, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.